Hi, Serena. How are Hi. you? So, oh, this okay. This is the merged link. Okay, great. Yeah. So first is the synaptic plasticity paper, and then the other paper he um, also said we could add that. Okay, I'll ask him what order he wants to do things. Oh, I also told him about the general question question. So, um, yeah, if by then, hopefully, oh, Jamie's here. He can ask the general how he became a scientist um, question. I'm sorry. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I got a notification just in a second. Can you? Could you hear me or have I been kicked out? I, yeah, I can hear you. Ah, oh, okay. <laughs> are you able to are you able to ask the general question today? Absolutely. Yep. I can okay. that. Yeah. Great, great. I think this is gonna be really cool. I'm excited about um the non-Vinoyman new physical devices that, that do these things. This is, I hope this is an industry trend that really catches on. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the way we can maybe actually generate real AGI by having this physical synaptic plasticity, um, like, and the physical device integrated. I think that's the way to go. It is. I'm st I will. I will refrain from launching into astrocytes, though. <laughs> oh, that we make astrocytes. Well, yeah. What? What? It's going to be the. And, how are we going to set up resonances and calcium waves and get theta waves and stuff? And they this <laughs> um, the artificial ones. So yeah, I agree. I think we'll get there. That'll just have to be next. But yeah. if what, yeah, once we're cooking physical devices um, that have these three factors, plasticities and things, then um, we'll discover those limitations. And lo and behold, it'll be astrocyte networks. <laughs> I'm starting to get quite fascinated by neuroplasticity. Ever since uh, you've been talking about it and ever since it keeps coming up in these rooms, eh, I've been like, this is fascinating. So that he's talking about doing this in a computers, right? Like using the methods of neural plasticity to help well, computers. We've been, yeah, we've been doing them on classical computers with mathematical algorithms. What we'll hear about today is how we're starting to make physical devices that have um, more natural physical properties that we can exploit that make better models for what we've explored mathematically. So it's exciting in the sense that if there's an industry trend and they start cranking these things out, we can just get to that next level in performance and see what stops us then. That is so awesome.
That's so cool. Yeah, yes. Also for implants, don't you think? Like to have the chip implants that have this uh, would make the oh, yeah. implants way better. Yeah, if we can have, for example, implants that have pre-learned complex behaviors that, you know, just need that final step of, of um, wiring in an organic sense post-transplant, that could get really interesting. That sounds as exciting as that sounds scary as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, nothing, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, insert decades of sci-fi literature. Absolutely. It's like all of these people, like, we were right all along. Um, <laughs> I wonder if there's, I wonder if there'd be ways to, like, um, put information on this. Do you know, like, if you were got like a, a, a tutor program that knew how to play piano and then could like adapt how you play to how it taught you or something awesome like that. I suppose in principle, because it is a mapping of, um, you know, intensive notes to actions mm -hmm. that needs to be trained to be precise. Mm -hmm. And so if it knew, if it had all the information already in it, like you just said, right? Um, already sort of pre-programmed in, but then the neuroplasticity would come in with the, the the human maybe finding certain hand motions, that, you know, the left hand motion more difficult than the right, and it would then conform the, the regime, the teaching. Well, the, the tricky thing on that kind of stuff is that it, it can't be too automatic or there's no way to, you know, put in stylistic variations. You know, it's, it, it, you somehow would have to map it to intent, but the, but the, but the person needs to sort of, you know, express themselves through the subtle variations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like in the, in the way that like everybody can play Bach or something, well, not everybody, but people play Bach, but everybody seems to have a, a very subtle sort of accent to how they play right mm -hmm. it's not it's not just um completely duplicated yeah and then that in that stylistic and you know variation is what makes makes it special certainly for repeat performances where you want to hear it again but you want to hear, hear it in a particular style mm, or for the person playing it or something like that right yeah. mm -hmm. Oh. Yeah, so just to, uh, hi Wisdom, how are you? Hi. Um, hey Wisdom. Uh, our guest speaker arrived. Uh, welcome Dr. Ghazi Sarwat. Um, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. It's wonderful to have you. We were already talking very excited. Like. <laughs> <laughs> about your work <laughs> we couldn't oh that's great <laughs> I missed it. okay perfect i hope i can justify my presence today oh yeah oh, certainly uh, certainly no i was i was pointing out it's just such an exciting trend that we're getting to physical devices that have the, a non von neumann approach to implementing these things we've had to study with mathematical models but uh it's just an exciting trend look Look forward to absolutely, absolutely. It's a very brave one. 
Okay, we'll start in a couple more minutes, um, another minute or so. But, uh... Sure. Have you had a good day so far, Doctor? Oh, my name's Jamie, by the way. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure having you here. Thank you, Jamie. Yes, I did. Um, yeah, it, it, it was a busy day. <laughs> um, but overall, yeah, it was quite nice. A good end to a Friday with this talk, I think. Um, but yeah, <laughs> how was your day? Oh, very well. Thank you. Thank you very much. I was I was looking forward to this uh, all day. I was looking through some of your paper. I, I'm just an amateur who just really excited with science. So there's a lot I, I'm kind of going over my head, but I'm very excited to hopefully hear you explain some of it through. So that's uh, very looking forward to this. Thank you. Thank you very much for the kind words. I think we are all amateurs in science. <laughs> um, and and I, I also look forward to yeah, passing on the knowledge that I have gained in the last few years. Really glad you were open to being here on the platform. There's a lot of speakers that have um, never done it before and found it to be surprising, but also enjoyable. And I hope you can find it the same way. <laughs> Absolutely. I think this is, this is a new experience to me. Um, uh, I've never had a podcast form of um, a science discussion. So, and yeah, yeah, I think this is a great forum and I congratulate you and your team for when we started this activity. Okay, well, I guess we can get started now. Um, so welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, today's guest speaker is Dr. Saeed Ghazi Sarwat. Um, Dr. Sarwat is a research staff member at IBM Research in Zurich, Switzerland. His research is primarily in the exploration and use of, of processing in-memory technologies for deep learning accelerators, both in the electronics and optics domain. His research often combines device design, new functional materials, and algorithmic breakthroughs in creating ideas that have a a shot at becoming disruptive technologies. He's a recipient of an Oxford University Felix Scholarship, Innovator Award by the Indian National Academy of Engineering, a Foundation Award by the Society of the Automated Engineering, and a Brahm Prakash Medal. He is an innovator of 11 international patents, and his work has been featured widely over the last several years in reputed journals and conferences. So with that, um, Dr. Sarwat, you can um, you can begin your content uh, to the audience. We have a merged PDF at the top of the room that has both both papers that uh, can be discussed today. Um, uh, so, uh, Dr. Sarwat, um, the first first one is the Nature Nanotechnology paper, and the second is the Nature Communications. Um, whichever order you'd like to, to uh, choose, but the audience is able to follow along the two papers. So with that, you're welcome to proceed. All right, thank you for the very kind introduction, Sarina. Um I think I'll but, go with the, with the order that you okay, have. Okay, but, but first, oh. I'm, I'm sorry, first we, we have a tradition where we like to ask a very general question and then and then you can launch into your content. So, Jamie, do you Okay, go ahead. Thank you very much, Runa. Um, 
Yeah, that's incredibly impressive background that you've got there. And one of the things that we always find interesting here is um, if you could maybe start off by telling us what is it that got you into science in the first place? What fascinated you and what, what's brought you on this path? Oh, wow, that's, that's a deep question. <laughs> um, right, so, so I think it's the name and the fame of being a scientist. <laughs> okay, that, that's <laughs> <laughs> um, That's fair. Um, right, so, so speaking very honestly, right, so I, I come from a very modest uh, background um, from a middle-class family in India, right? And, and uh, the way we were brought up by our parents uh, was, was, was pretty interesting. So we were taught from the early on, from very early age that uh, the path to improving your life is education, right? Uh, there's no other option. You have to educate yourself uh, to, to become a better version of yourself, right? And I think to me, uh, it was the, the, the interest and, and, and the, the vigor to, to, to learn new things that, that eventually led me to doing science. Um, and, and, and yeah, so I think uh, the, the thirst for education was really the, the driver of, uh, the driver to becoming, to, to, to following a path in science for me. Um, but but if, if I really look back now, um, as a kid, I would say I was a very inquisitive person. Um, and and uh, uh, I thought of myself uh, as a person who, who would love to, you know, inform people uh, about things I didn't know. Um, and, and be essentially a biological Google, right, <laughs> uh, in my friend circle. Um, so, so the thirst for science started there, right? So uh, the, I, I wanted to know more about everything so I can let people around me know more, uh, educate themselves. And, and this is the first priority for, for becoming a scientist in my mind, right? You have to have that motivation and, and that, that, that figure uh, uh, to, to, to take a path in science. Um, but, but the turning point really came uh, in, in high school. Uh, so I, I remember being a part of uh, a team, a, a quiz team, uh, um, and, and we were trained by uh, uh, scientists in, um, who, who pursued uh, material science. And in our training, uh, they, they, they gave us models of atoms. Uh, they, they showed us how atoms move in, in, in materials, right? So. Uh, and, and that was something that that struck me, right? So I, I was just amazed uh, by 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 knowing the fact that we we had reached a point that we can see atoms, we can see atoms move, and it was it was that that particular experience that just changed my perspective of what I wanted to do in the future, right? And this is how I became a scientist. Um, yeah. So was this your apple dropping on your head moment, <laughs> as the as the legends go? Uh, not really, because it was <laughs> it was not actually dropping on the head, but rather um, how would I say watching an interstellar movie, right? <laughs> so so seeing something that you have never seen before, right? Um, mm -hmm. So as as a kid, uh, you know, all you cared about was you know knowing. So there were two things I could do as a kid, right? I can watch a lot of cartoons and anime and gain knowledge on them, right? Um, and this is what I did for for the, for the longest time until this incident happened. Uh, going from uh, learning about cartoons and, and animes, you, you're shown a picture of uh, uh, a micro graph where you can see atoms. And and that was a game changer, right? <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. That's even quite inspiring. And uh, one last question before we get into it then. And so what is it, uh, was it this then 
this knowledge that brought you to the field that you're currently studying? Did you just pursue this directly all the way through here? Oh, no, no, absolutely not. So I started my uh, business career quite early on. Um, uh, in fact, in my second year, in my soft, sophomore year of my college, uh, and I started off with uh, traditional uh, material science uh, research, which is metallurgy, right? So study of uh, metals. That is what I started with. Um, but 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 I slowly evolved uh, uh, in my approach to science, right? I I think that uh, as a scientist, as a scientist, I'm not bound to a certain field, but rather uh, uh, bound to multiple disciplines, right? And and this field that I'm pursuing now, uh, it just it just happened, uh, and and I and I embraced it as it happened. Um, yeah. That's incredible. It's it's fascinating to see that so many scientists um, end up in remarkable places from from such unexpected directions. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think that the the, the key is you know to be just open to to solving important problems, uh, and and if you can do that, then I think you can fit into any field, uh, even the fields you never imagined you would be doing. Right. But just 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 on a side note. Uh, in college, you know, I intentionally did not take uh, the field of electrical engineering or computer science. Uh, I, I was scared of, uh, of coding, right? Uh, the, the C++ blue screen that would appear on the desktop would put me off. Right? Uh, but today, all I do is coding. All I do is electrical engineering, right? <laughs> so I come, so yeah, turning point. <laughs> That's incredible. Thank you very much for that. Um, okay, Serena? So yeah, wonderful. Okay, so take us take us away. Sure. So um, to set the stage, uh, I will start off by saying that we live in very interesting times, um, times when we are fundamentally rethinking about how computers should work. Right? We have not done this before. We had a design of a computer back in 1950s, and we have not changed it. Right. And, and today we live uh, in, in an age where we want to change the way computers should work. And the reason for this is, is, is because we, we cannot uh, process the data that we're generating this day with the computational power that we have, right? Um, and, and the data that, that has been generated today is not just the data by you and me on Snapchat or on WhatsApp, right? It's also by the machines that we have built. So in fact, machines today are generating more data than humans. And this is an exponential trend, so it's, it's bound to increase. Um, and and one option uh, to 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 create a new computers is is going brain inspired, uh, or or otherwise called neuromorphic computing. So neuromorphic computing, uh, in the broadest of definition, is um, is a subset of neuromorphic engineering, right? Um, and the goal of neuromorphic engineering is to um, understand. Uh, the brain, um, the computational models of the brain uh, by emulating them on hardware, right? On silicon. So that's the goal of neuromorphic engineering. Uh, what, what, what we are trying to do, uh, what my team is trying to do uh, is we want to take this emulation further, right? We want to make this emulation for, uh, uh, useful um, for, for computations or useful for operations that we, that we need in our daily lives. So neuromorphic computing is a field where we're using the ideas of uh, neuromorphic engineering to do useful computations. Uh, and and uh, like, like, like being said, uh, a neuromorphic computer takes inspiration from the brain, 
uh, we do not understand the brain in its fullness of glory, right? Uh, and it will take us some time before we even reach that point. Uh, but right now, what we're trying to do in the field is replicate the building blocks of the brain, which are the neurons or the nerve cells, right? Um, specifically, we're trying to emulate uh, uh, the components of, such as the neural soma, the neuron, or the synapses that connect the neurons, and the dendrites, right? These are the three building blocks that we know of as of now, of which do computation in our brain. Um, and, and this is the approach that we're taking um, in, in, in this day and age. However, so far, uh, what we've achieved, and quite remarkably what we've achieved, is, is building a model where uh, we take the traditional approach of artificial intelligence or learning, right? So, so modern hardware, um, it has a bunch of synapses and neurons, right? Um, we, we train the synapses uh, to a certain task. And once we train the synapses, they don't change. Right? This is based on the idea that the neurons that fire together, wire together. Right? The famous Hebbian learning uh, formulation uh, by psychologist Daniel Hebbian. Um, however, modern neuroscience has taught us that there's more, there's more action happening than just wiring together, right? So neurons, when they fire together, they not only wire together, but they also have a range of temporal changes at the synaptic junction, right? It's not a simple step function, it's, it's, a, it's a temporal uh, change in the synapse. Um, and, and, and this is one area, of, which is one area which our hardware has not yet captured uh, in the fullest of sense, right? The temporal dynamics of synapses, the temporal dynamics of neurons, this is something that, that is still being investigated. So the first paper that you see on the PDF is uh, related to uh, building a hardware, a synapse, an artificial synapse for the neurons to connect with. Uh, they cannot only have, they cannot only learn the way traditional neuromorphic hardware does, but it also has this uh, temporal dynamics um, uh, ingrained in it, right? Um, and and the example that we show in this paper is is of a, of a memory technology called phase change memory. Now, phase change you must you are you already you must already be familiar with phase change memory. This is the same uh, uh, the technology that goes on to the DVDs and CDs, right? Uh, some of you may be too young to know what DVDs and CDs are, but uh, the way the DVDs and CDs work is using something called a phase change material, um, and and in the phase change material, uh, the idea is you can toggle uh, the way atoms are arranged. Um, and by toggling how the atoms are arranged, you can change the property of the material. You can change its optical properties as well as electrical properties, right? Um, so what we did in this in this paper, the one that you have on the screen, is um, we used a phase change material based device uh, where uh, we uh, so the phase change material device is a synapse. Uh, we used the idea of the atomic positional changes for storing the strength of the synapse, right? That's how the how strongly the neurons connect is by the strength of the synapse, the synaptic efficacy. Uh, um, but what we did on top of that is we introduced the temporal feature by using another property of phase change material, which is its semiconductivity. So semiconductors are ubiquitous, right? Um, our, 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 our mobile phones and computers, they run on silicon, silicon is semiconductor, and so are most phase change material. Um, so what we do uh, with, with the new uh, control is we change the, the, 
the electrical conductance of the phase change family device also by using a semiconducting property. Um, and this semiconducting property um, is transient. It only exists as long as there is an external signal applied to the device, just like transistors. So now you have a device where the atomic positions of the atoms dictate what is the long-term plasticity, right? Uh, the long-term memory, uh, so as to say. And on top of that, there is a, a control knob that further controls uh, the synaptic efficacy, but temporarily, as long as you want it to be there, right? So, so this is what we do. So in the first paper, we, we try to capture the synaptic plasticity uh, um, uh, in, in a more uh, uh, rigorous way. Uh, and, and we do that by having this additional knob on the device, right? Um, and, and what we show is, hey, this is not just biologically inspired features of a synapse, but this has impactful and useful uh, uh, implications, right? Uh, in machine learning. So the first demonstration that we have uh, is of a new form of uh, learning. Uh, we call it short-term um, uh, spike-independent plasticity. Um, and, and, and the idea here is uh, that you can, uh, you can recognize it. So the example that we show is of visual perception. So if, if you can scroll down on, on, on figure, is it um, right? So uh, if you scroll down to Figure Two, you would see uh, uh, that there's there's a person, there's a computer vision uh, who is trying to see a boy and a girl, right? So in traditional artificial intelligence or machine learning approaches, you must train the computer vision with all possible uh, uh, postures of the boy and the girl, right? Uh, that is a trained data set. You have to train with all possible transformations. Um, now, when you try to um, uh, run your machine learning model in real life for inference uh, that we say, uh, then the machine learning model would do very well on the data set that it has seen, right? The postures of the boy and girl that it has seen. Um, but it would not do so well on the postures of the boy and girl which is, it has not seen, right? And this is very different from how, how we learn things, right, as humans. Uh, you can show me, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, the picture of Jamie. We just it's just go to Jamie, and no matter what Jamie does, no matter how he moves, I would be still able to tell that hey, that person is Jamie, right? Um, so, uh, so this this apparently could come from this temporal dynamics of the synapses. Uh, uh, this this ability of the human brain can come from the temporal dynamics of the synapses, and this is precisely what we emulate. So what we do on the hardware is we train the network with some images, and then we show the images that the network has never seen before, right? And the network can still recognize the object. Right? This is the holy grail in a way. You are safe, uh, and it's a holy grail because uh, you're, you're, firstly, you do not have uh, endless supply of training data set, right? You don't have all possible postures of the boy and girl. Um, it's impossible, right? And second, uh, if you want your model to become better, you need more training data set, which means you have to spend more energy and time to train the model. Um, what we are doing is we're training on a, on a subsample data, but doing inference, uh, it is still learning, right? It can still recognize things. So that's the first application that we demonstrate, right? Uh, of what such a device can newly do, right? Um, so that, that has to do with the synaptic plasticity uh, uh, at the scale of individual synapses, that is local to individual synapses. 
The second application that you see, uh, that you would see on, on figure five, I think, of the, of the manuscript is, um, is what we call homeostatic plasticity, right? So uh, the synapses have multiple uh, plasticity models, right? There's, uh, there's the local plasticity rules, uh, and there's, there are also global plasticity rules. Um, so what we show in, in figure five is, is that, hey, uh, you know, you can do more interesting uh, machine learning uh, uh, tasks by using the global plasticity feature as well. So uh, what we solve in, in that example is a very difficult problem to solve, which is a combinatorial optimization problem. Um, this is uh, what we call a non-polynomial uh, problem. It's, it's very hard to solve with traditional computers because there are, you never know what the solution is with such problems, right? Um, just to put in context, this is the same pro problem that is being solved in protein folding, or the same problem that's being solved in in uh, uh, scheduling how the flight, how the airplanes should fly, right? So they don't crash with each other, right? Um, the rules they should take. It's a very difficult problem. So what we do here is we take a biologically inspired approach where we have our neural network and we inject noise to all the synapses, right? And we inject this noise to all the synapses via the semi-conductivity feature of the phase change memory. And by injecting noise, we are able to solve this hard problem quite efficiently and, and uh, in a very uh, uh, energy efficient manner. Right, so, so this are, uh, these are some, 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 some toy examples, so as to say, uh, to illustrate that what uh, a neomorphic hardware can do if we can emulate the biological counterparts better. Right. So, so yeah. So, if there are questions uh, on this part, I'll be happy to take. Hey. Um. Yeah. Thank. Thanks for for joining us today. This is this is super interesting. Um. I'm just glancing through the, through the paper here. Um. There were a couple of questions I had. Um. In terms of yeah, I know you mentioned just now energy efficiency, which is. Uh, super, super important um, aspect of, you know, motivating this, this, these kinds of uh, new, new architectures. I, I'm curious how it compares uh, to, to other like standard, uh, you know, machine learning metrics in terms of training and performance. And if you could unpack a little bit how the, the training works, um, I, I would appreciate it. Oh right, right. So, so at least, at least we have so, uh, to, to give you concrete figures. One has to do benchmarking. Um, so, at least in this paper, we have not done benchmarking. Where we have compared this architecture against other, but in a different paper, which is not linked here, we have shown that this approach is not only energy efficient, it is also more accurate uh, than conventional artificial uh, uh, neural networks in terms of its accuracy, right? Um, sorry, what was the second question? I'm just trying to um, recollect. What was the second question that you had? Oh, um, it was it was just about the the details of of how the the training procedure works. Oh, right, right. So, uh, like I said, so uh, traditionally, if you need to, if one has to train uh, artificial neural networks, uh, the network must see uh, a lot of training data sets, right? Um, and this is where the bulk of energy consumption lies, right? Um, just to give an, exam an example, uh, you know, uh, uh, there are models in artificial uh, neural networks 
that take the same amount of energy as powering the entire New York City, right? Uh, so they're super energy intensive, and that energy expense comes from the fact that you have to train them with a lot of training data set, and you have to train them in a manner which is not biologically inspired, right? Um, although we have not done benchmarking with our approach, what we show is that uh, one can take a, a biologically inspired approach where uh, there's, there's no need to learn on a lot of training data, right? Uh, you can learn on uh, a very few training data sets. That's one point. Point two is you also operate in a manner that's biologically inspired, meaning you operate with uh, with spike training. You work with action potentials, right? Uh, and this gives a lot of energy gains uh, uh, to, 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 to the algorithm or to the hardware. Um, so that's where um, the, the benefits really lie. Um, so that, that's yeah. awesome. That's, what, that's the... Uh... That's what I like to hear about this. Uh, this is this is what I'm hoping. I, I feel like the the current state of AI and, and where we're heading uh, and the trajectories of all that are it's just kind of awkward. Um, I, I had a couple of questions about in Figure One. You're kind of outlining some of the you know that that you've. Um, you have these synapses where, that have different uh, states, different. Um, temporal features and this kind of um, having a, a variety of uh, temporal features for synapses uh, has already been shown to be very advantageous in, in, you know, simulated neural networks as well. So this is really cool. I was curious about whether there's, uh, I see long-term potentiation, short-term potentiation. I'm wondering if there's any uh, mechanisms for depression at this point. Oh, oh. Right, right, right. Oh, there are mechanisms for depression. So I think in the supplementary information of the paper, you would see synaptic fatigue uh, being illustrated. Uh, so so, so in the main test of the paper, we focus on uh, facilitation. This is the synaptic facilitation process that there's an increase in the synaptic efficacy. And you need this for the task that we solve, right? But, but, but the cool thing is, like you said, you can also emulate synaptic um, fatigue. And not just synaptic fatigue, you can also uh, um, uh, implement other bunch of temporal dynamics. You can also put in noise to the system, right? So our neurons they sit in a in a in a medium that's that is basically a fluid, right? And ions move around, they diffuse around. So the medium is not the constant. There's a lot of noise happening, right? You can also add that on top. Um, so so this this feature, this this idea of temporal dynamics is invariant. To, uh, to, to, to the operation, right? You can, all, you can do a bunch of things with it, yeah. Also, I don't mean to hog the mic, so please, anyone just stop me. Uh, I am curious though, if the synapses always work uh, completely independently of each other, or if they are um, able to compete in some way. I'm, I'm thinking about mm -hmm. uh, some of the more nuanced, um, plasticity mechanisms mechanisms we see in the brain at the level of you know dendritic branches and things where they they're ultimately the competition arises from um, you know leaking signaling between synapses and competition for resources in, in, from the branches I'm curious if there's any coupling between the synapses and in, in this architecture um, I see I see uh, I'm not very familiar with, with with the specifics of, of the plasticity model that you're referring to, 
Um, but but definitely right. So with, with the idea of synaptic fatigue, you can you can you can put in this leaky term there, right? You can you can decrease the connection of your device uh, or the synapse uh, via fatiguing it. Um, so that is very much possible on 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 the hardware. Um, yeah, yeah. So at the level of individual synapses, you can you can have this leaky term involved. Traditionally, leaky term is involved at, uh, my understanding is, so the leaky term comes at the neuronal soma, right, at the neuron, uh, not at the synapse. Um, but, but in a way, you can see the leak as the synaptic fatigue, the fatiguing of the synapse. Um, yeah, it is doable. Just to set an example for this, right? So um, uh, it, is, it is understood to an extent in the brain that uh, synaptic facilitation happens uh, much in, in the central of the cerebellum, right? But synaptic fatigue is equally important, right? This is the mechanism that allows us to, to go to a disco party and still pinpoint to where your friend is, right? This is a sound localization task, right? So if you're in an environment where there's a lot of sound and you still have a friend shouting your name somewhere, right? you will be still able to locate that person. And this is where the idea of synaptic fatigue comes in. Uh, yeah, so. All this can be implemented uh, and is to be seen what we can do with the hardware. Yeah. So I, I have one last kind of broader question and then I will sure. I will get out of your way for you. Everyone wants to hear your presentation. Um, <laughs> no worries. So my question is about that we're talking here about the claim is that the architecture is, um, you know, non von, no von Neumann. I'm right. curious uh, in what sense um, the that architecture is being broken. So, like for example, we you typically think of a processing unit. So you'd have like you know a logic unit, uh, right. processor registers, a control unit. So you'd need uh, instruction, program counter, memory. I think the traditional definition also includes, you know, external mass storage and 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 I/O. Um, so, and 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 like I think that you know the term has evolved to mean uh, stored program computer that requires instruction fetch. So it, it has this this architecture um, broken the need for stored programs in that sense or. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so uh, the way you can imagine uh, non-formant computing is imagine your USB uh, drive uh, becoming intelligent, right? So right now your USB drive, all it can do is it can store data, right? And to be able to do something useful with the data, you need to connect it, the USB drive to the computer. Um, but but in non-formant scheme, uh, you can uh, perform computations without ever moving the data. So you can have the data stationary at place where it is, and then you can uh, do operations on the data. So these are the instructions that you're talking about. So you can, you can for example, if you want to do um, a multiply operation, you can, you can do a multiply operations without ever moving the data from, from its location. Um, so this is where the idea of in-memory computing or non-formal computing comes in. Um, all that said, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's still, uh, so non-formal computing, so non-formal computing is not completely, uh, you know, um, uh, without uh, the conventional uh, methods. 
uh, a part of our computational operation is done in a non von Neumann scheme. Uh, some operations must still be done in the von Neumann scheme, right? So this has to be understood. Um, to put an example, um, uh, most artificial intelligence uh, algorithms, right? Um, 70 to 90 percent of the of the mathematical operation they need is a matrix vector multiplication operation that that prosecutes around 70 percent of the of the operation that needs to be done. And this you can do in memory, uh, non for Newman way uh, of operation. But there are there is this 30 percent of other operations that must be done. Those are still done, uh, you know, in in a in a for Newman scheme of some sort. Uh, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. If I could just quickly ask a question, please, Doctor. Um, when I was looking at your paper, when you're talking about the um, the the low with uh, volatility, um, you know, I'm guessing that that's like the short term, so the long term memory, right? That doesn't change as much. The plasticity isn't as as you say volatile, um, and the short term is more volatile, right? That's how you have it. Yeah. Um, and my question is, in the paper you had, you mentioned short-term plasticity can be used as a filter. Could you explain like what exactly that means and, and, and what that is, please? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't really hear when the last word, oh, short-term plasticity um, can be used yeah, as... Yeah, as a filter. Oh, as a filter. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. Right. So, so this is right. Absolutely. So, uh, so like, like we discussed a few seconds ago, uh, there are different models, there are different synaptic models, plasticity models, right? And each model does something different. So long-term plasticity um, uh, means that it provides memory, right? This is how we remember things. Uh, Short-term plasticity has to do with the temporal feature, uh, where, the, where the memory is lost after a certain time uh, duration, right? And, and uh, traditionally, uh, this is how we came to know of short-term plasticity in neuroscience, right? Um, if if you were to uh, inject a train of pulses to a certain synapse, right, uh, uh, of with different frequency, right. So imagine you have ten input uh, pulses to a synapse, a biological synapse, uh, and you're modulating uh, the frequency between or the time period between individual pulses. You will find that the output depends on the frequency that you have. Um, so this is where. Uh, uh, the idea of filtering comes in. And this has to do with the STP, uh, short-term plasticity. Essentially, uh, uh, what, what happens is, uh, if you increase the frequency of your input, uh, the output of the neuron or the postsynaptic spike uh, would, would not happen. Uh, it would either be of very low amplitude or it will not happen if the frequency is high. Uh, so this is where the idea of filtering comes in. The, the neuron is now uh, the, the, the output of a neuron not only depends on uh, the number of input spike trains, but also the frequency at which they arrive. And this is a filter essentially, right? You're filtering out information based on their temporal dynamics or the temporal state. Um, um, right, so just, just to give you a biological sense of where this comes from, right? So um, um, the long-term plasticity of the synapses uh, has been, the different ways to, to, to reasoning how it happens. So the long-term plasticity of the synapses has to do with the uh, ion channels, the number of receptors, right? If you have more receptors or specific receptors like MDA, then 
you have uh, long-term plasticity. Short-term plasticity, however, comes from uh, how much neurotransmitters can you release uh, uh, to the synaptic junction, right? Uh, and if your if your input frequencies arrive uh, at very high frequency, then you are uh, depleting the amount of neurotransmitters in your synapse, right? So uh, uh, before the synapse can replenish uh, its its uh, concentration of amount of neurotransmitters, the next spike comes in, right? And because there are no because there are no neurotransmitters to to pass on the information to the next neuron, the output of the postsynaptic signal will be small, right? Yeah, so this is the filtering uh, yeah, approach. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Thank, thank you. I mean, yeah, it brings up lots of more questions, but thank you very much. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Thank you. Right, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, do you want to continue with the presentation? Thank you. I cannot hear you well. Um, do you want, yeah, so we can continue with the uh, ah, presentation okay. and we okay, can hold, hold questions till a little later. Oh, sounds good. Sounds good. Um, right. So I think now um, all that said, let's let's uh, now talk about the second paper that, that we recently published. Um, this should be um, um, on the second document of your PDF, right? Uh, and this, again, uh, is, is a continuation of what we just Discussed, right? So we discussed that uh, the synapses uh, are, are rich. They are they're more functional than, than we think they are, right? And they're more functional because of the plasticity mechanisms they have. Um, so, so, so all that said, uh, uh, in this paper, we came up with a new device concept uh, that allows us to do uh, even more cool things, right? Um, so, so what we did in this uh, paper is we created uh, uh, a nanoscale device, which we call an optomembrister, uh, that that can integrate not just electrical signal, but also optical signal, right? Um, the analogy that I like to draw uh, is, is from the field of optogenetics, right? So optogenetics has been a game changer in neuroscience. Uh, in optogenetics, uh, what one does is they, they modulate the neural activity in the brain by shining light on the neurons, right? Or the modified neurons. And, and this is essentially the approach that we take in this paper. We create uh, an artificial emulation where uh, the synaptic activity can be modulated with an external signal, the third signal, which is light, right? So, um, right, so this is, this is the core of, uh, of this paper. Uh, it's a, it again is in the line of making neomorphic computing hardware more biological-like, right? It's, it's in the same line of thought. So uh, if you now go to figure um, three of this paper, you would see what we try to do with the device. So uh, uh, given that we can now modulate the synaptic efficacy, uh, not just using the electrical signal on the hardware, but also optical signals, we went on to implement uh, an algorithm of new of reinforcement learning, right? Uh, to set the tone for it, um, uh, if you play the if you play the game of ping pong. Right. If you play table tennis, um, you to learn to play table tennis, you serve uh, the ball on the other side of the table, and then you wait uh, for the for, for the result. Right? Uh, you 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 do an action, and then you wait for some time to know if the action uh, was successful in a certain task. 
right? So if the ball lands on the table, it's it's a happy thing, right? It's a reward. You basically get the reward and you tell yourself, hey, this is how I need to serve. And this is how you learn how to play table dynamics, right? Um, and this uh, set of actions, they happen, uh, you know, in seconds, in minutes, or even days, right? It's, it's reinforcement learning happens in a longer duration of time. This is very different to what we think of as learning in the brain right now. When we think about learning, like I said, neurons that fire together, wire together, but the firing happens in the time scale of milliseconds, uh, a thousand of a second. That, that is the time scale that the neurons are working with. But, but surprisingly, the tasks that we learn every day, they happen in seconds or in hours, right? Not in milliseconds, right? And, and they happen with some reinforcement. Reinforcement can be bad or it can be good. Right? So, so this is what we went on to implement here. Uh, so, so what you see on figure B is, is, is uh, a toy demonstration where we made a mouse, a rodent, learn uh, to navigate. Right? We made it to we made the rodent learn the path to find cheese in a maze, right? Uh, and this is a reinforcement learning idea. So, so what really happens uh, in this particular demonstration is that the the, the rodent it is moving randomly uh, in the maze, right? And when it moves randomly, certain cells in the brain fire, right? And and those cells fire specifically uh, depending on where the rodent is. Right, but the rodent is also expecting a reward, right? So when the rodent moves, it is also expecting a reward. It wants to find cheese, right? So the rodent moves something as uh, it moves to a random location. Um, it is expecting a reward, but the reward is not received, right? So it comes back to its original position. Position. It tries some other uh, route. It doesn't find the cheese. It comes back, but then in one possible scenario, it goes to the location of a cheese, expecting it will find a cheese. And if it finds the cheese, then it automatically learns the, the path to the cheese. It remembers the path now. You can put the rodent anywhere and it will now find the path to cheese. And this is the idea of reinforcement learning. Uh, specifically, what we do is we use light as the reward signal. So when the, when the mouse moves, uh, it is expecting light as a reward signal on the synapses. And when it finds the cheese, uh, the light superimposes with the electrical signal and the synaptic efficacy is changed in long-term. Long-term plasticity happens. Um, so this is the specific demonstration of reinforcement learning using what is called three-factor plasticity, right? So traditionally, when you talk about plasticity, it is two-factor, presynaptic pulse, postsynaptic pulse. In reinforcement learning, it's three-factor. You also need to have a reward signal. Uh, uh, and this is this is how things happen in the brain, right? So uh, uh, this is where the, the idea of dopamine comes in or serotonin comes in, right? Uh, the neuromodulators or neurotransmitters. Um, when we perform a task, we expect a reward. If we get a reward, dopamine is released in the brain, everywhere in the brain, and only in the locations where activity happened, those synapses uh, become stronger, right? And, and we can do this now uh, in memory, in a non fond Newman way uh, of computing. So here we uh, implement reinforcement learning using this, re, this idea of uh, um, yeah, three-factor plasticity. And this is yet another example that goes on to say that, hey, you can really do cool things if you emulate the brain better, right? 
And this is precisely what we're doing here. Yes, we are trying to emulate the brain uh, using its mechanism uh, uh, that, is, that it uses. All right, so this is another application. And this is where the idea of temporal signal again comes in, right? So the reward signal is temporal. It happens for a certain time and then it disappears. So this temporal uh, idea is again featured in this application and we implement that right, with this device. All right, so now let's move to the second application that we demonstrate. Um, the second problem that we show is, is the idea of uh, shunting inhibition, another popular uh, mechanisms, mechanism uh, in the dendrites of the neuron, right? Now to set a stage for this, um, you know, AI uh, or the, the, the mathematical models for AI, they, they emerged in 1940s, right? Uh, by 1950s, we, we in a way knew uh, what uh, mathematical models uh, we need to use, right? To, to make a machine that is biologically inspired, right? But then from 1950s to 1980s, this is what we call the AI winter. That can happen in AI, right? Uh, uh, and, and, and one reason why there was an AI winter was because of a problem called XOR. So XOR is, is a logical problem. It's like AND gate or OR gate, right? It's a, it's a logical problem, which is non-linear. Uh, and its non-linearity implies that it's very difficult to solve using linear operations, which modern machine learning does. So modern machine learning, learning is all based on linear operations. So what, what we show in this, in, this, in this particular demonstration is that you can use our devices uh, as, as input to dendrites, right? And with that, you can achieve a single neuron solution to this very difficult problem of XOR. And the highlight is the single neuron Excuse solution. Me. Excuse me. Sure. Uh, sure. This, uh, this, uh, this slide disconnect. Uh, I just want to confirm. What, what, are you saying that the modern deep learning algorithms are linear? Uh, and, and oh, right, right. Right. So, uh, yeah. are you so, saying uh, something like back propagation is linear? Or no, no, what, no. What I'm, no, I'm saying that uh, uh, the, the, the linearity is this idea of matrix vector multiplication. So, uh, when when the presynaptic spikes come to the neurons, right? Um, so, the operation of uh, the the operation that takes place between the input and the synapses is linear. So, that's the linearity. Uh, there's no non-linearity in the synapses. The synapses are linear. They they are like weighing elements. Um, yeah. So that, that is the linearity part of uh, uh, the modern neural network. Uh, but yes, there's non-linearity that happens at the neuron uh, in modern artificial intelligence and in back propagation. But that is different. Yeah. So biological neurons, uh, if you say, uh, they take inputs and right. uh, they produce an output. So right. So there's an input and output. So this is, is this linear or non-linear in definition? What is this? Or of course, right. so, Oh, absolutely. So, so, so just to break down the process, you have input that comes to the dendrites, right? Then they go into the synapse and they come, and then out they come to the neuron body, right? So before, uh, so the output of the synapse is a linear operation. The output of the neuron is a non-linear operation. Does that clarify? So the synapses per se are linear. Okay, sure. I'll uh, we'll chat later. You can continue. Are are your dendrites linear here? Sorry, I I I didn't I didn't hear that. Uh, are, are your dendrites linear? 
in the model, in the hardware. Uh, but yes, so right, yeah, so right. So devices that we have, they, they work with this uh, uh, linearity. That's correct. Yes, yeah. But again, dendrites make connections using synapses, right? And synapses are linear uh, in in the traditional form, right? The long-term plasticity form, not in the short-term plasticity. The long-term plasticity form of dendrite synapses is linear. Yeah, I, I studied uh, bio, dendrites biologically, and, and I'm always thinking about the added compute power from the well-known uh, varieties of different types of nonlinearities in, in the dendrites themselves. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so this is where this, this idea emerged, right? So in fact, uh, recently it was shown that one can solve this problem of XOR using dendrites. And, and the feature of dendrites that is used is its nonlinearity, precisely the nonlinearity of the dendrites. Yeah. So again, one has to distinguish the different components, right? Synapses, neuronal body, and the dendrites. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, I hope I hope that was clear. Uh, anyway, so 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 what one can do is one can solve the problem of XOR nonetheless in modern artificial neural networks. Uh, using multiple neurons, right? You can always have a network of neurons and solve XOR. So you map uh, uh, the nonlinear problem into a linear domain with multiple neurons and you solve XOR. This is doable and that is how we came out of the AI winter, right? Uh, but but uh, we have recently understood that dendritic computations uh, allow you to make a single neuron perform XOR. Uh, and this is the approach that we took here, right? In a different flavor though. So we use this idea of uh, shunting inhibition of the synapses, of the dendrites, right? Um, and the idea of shunting inhibition is that uh, your, your input signal that flows to the dendrite can be shunted away before it goes to the neuron, right? And, and this is precisely what we did with our devices. Uh, we use the electrical signal and the optical signal uh, to do this operation, uh, the shunting inhibition operation. And via that, we are able to, you know, solve this XOR within the same using the same device. Um, yeah, so that's 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 one another example of how this new type of devices uh, can can help us emulate some of the biological features um, in a more robust way, right? Now that said, this is still all proof of principle, right? You're not seeing, uh, you know, a network of devices here. You're just seeing uh, the notion that. Uh, if one can emulate the neuromorphic principles better, then uh, the computation problems we are trying to solve now becomes easier and more efficient. Right, good. Um, yeah, I think that brings me to, to the end of this um, article as well. And I'm happy to take more questions. So I have few and you can choose not to answer as well. Uh, so uh, I had, I basically attended this debate on neuromorphic computing versus traditional computing. Lanya Kuhn, who's like the father of modern deep learning, he showed some skepticism. He basically asked some questions uh, to the NVIDIA chief who's leading this. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah right. Uh, so uh, the fundamental problem is that uh, what, uh, so the way the deep learning algorithm came about and how Google has designed the specific chips to do the tensor calculation is as, as follows. They, they build an algorithm first on paper. They method, mathematically solve it on paper, right? Mm -hmm. There was no computing without computer. 
then they got something called computer and they started training those algorithms slowly then they realized okay let's let's design it would be better if we design chips which can optimize these algorithms specific to uh, absolutely uh, mm-hmm. right and but what we see in what what would you see with uh, chips like lohi you call it lohi right this uh, yeah. mm-hmm. chip right so intel came up with this chip right but apparently these uh, why design a chip for algorithm which which doesn't work right yeah, there there are no algorithm which we have seen as per se what we have seen is that we have taken reinforcement that the already tested functioning deep learning algorithms and now we are basically taking them and testing it on chips like lohi so uh, the, the so the thinking is and, and the execution has been uh, really uh, opposite in a way in which a traditional uh, neural network came about and how we are approaching electric and we are all for success for this neuromorphic computing right it's, it, it would be great if we can pull this off uh, but, uh, but you know there's i just want to make a philosophical point as well. it might sound mm-hmm. very philosophical but let's see uh, when well uh, you know the guys uh, armish armish um are are we bringing this to a question yes i think i asked already asked two questions in between i so this this didn't and uh, got yeah, oh, i hope you have right so uh, the hope you noted the, those questions so what so about I, I haven't i haven't seen your questions right uh, what are your questions right so the question is uh, what are the algorithms you which are new which are different than deep learning which neuromorphic computer has come up with which can solve the problems which we are which, which oh, deep learning I, cannot now uh, what are the algorithms not the chip not the chip design so I'm, i have uh, I'm, i no no this is this is this is a very fair and good question right um, so there's a reason why you don't have neuromorphic chips that are mainstream it's a reason why artificial intelligence with this deep learning models perceptron models are are in the market and not um, um the 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 neuromorphic chips right um and the reason is we still haven't figured out a way to make this uh, neuromorphic um chips or algorithms uh, more accurate uh, uh than 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 what we have with artificial uh, neural networks right so that's that that's that's the bottom line so what we want at the end of the day as a consumer right we want our computers to consume less energy and be extremely accurate right uh, what what we do not care a lot is what is happening in the background it could be running an uh, a sparking neural network neuromorphic computing or it could be running an ann um so it's a very fair question uh, and this is where the research of um, uh, uh sparking neural network license what are the what are the algorithms where uh, where a, a neuromorphic chip would excel uh, artificial neural networks and 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 everyone is doing this so for example the first chip first popular chip was IBM Pro North in 2013 and then came Lohi right and what Lohi is doing is uh, it has made its chip open source so as a neo scientist as a computational neo scientist you can run your algorithms on their chip and and they have made it open source simply because they want to find a killer application for neo morphic computing um so yeah so that is that is where the debate is what what we are trying to so what we are trying to do now is basically uh say that you can make some of the task more efficient uh uh using this ideas of neuromorphic uh, uh, mechanisms uh, because the other the other way of deep learning is very uh, expensive but i'm not uh, i'm not i do not say 
see, artificial universes are amazing, right? They are they're one of the best discoveries that we have had in, in many years, right? And they're not going away. Um, but neomorphic computing may allow us to make our computers more efficient. So, and, and this is really needed. So maybe do not, in a, maybe in some applications, you do not need accuracy. You just want to save power. For example, you can have your CCTV cameras, uh, thousands of them uh, uh, on the street. And if you use a neomorphic sensor, a chip, then you will save thousands or 10,000 X folds of power because power is important there. So it all comes down to application really. I hope that that answers yeah, your question. So I had a I had a question um, along this line. In terms of uh, in your first paper, you yeah, mentioned sure. there was a result of it requiring fewer training examples and learning faster. Oh could right, you, I can. Could you get into a little bit more of the mechanisms of that? Because that's certainly. Um, um, you know, a, a contemporary weakness in, in deep learning. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So this is one algorithm. So again, I was coming to this, this point, right? So in the first paper, we, we talk about one potential algorithm, right? We test this hypothesis on the chip. We came up with an algorithm where um, we, 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 we do not have to train the neural network uh, in the way you train an artificial neural network. We don't train it with all possible images. Uh, in, in the task of visual perception. We only train it with a subset of images. Um, and when the model has to perform the task of, uh, I don't know, classifying things, it can still run, it can still learn as it is doing, right? So, so this is what we do. So this is there's this idea of short-term spike time independent plasticity. It's an algorithm that we came up with that allows you to allow you to do um, inference, this visual perception in a more uh, robust way and also more accurate way. There's another paper that's not uh, shown uh, in, in your PDF, but there we have compared this idea, this algorithm against conventional neural networks. We compared against CNN, LSTM, RNN, and we show that with the proof that, hey, with such algorithm, you can not only have the highest accuracy for this task, but also you can be more energy efficient. Yeah, and this purely comes from the fact that we are including the short-term dynamics in the synapses. Yeah. So you also mentioned that uh, spike trains in particular gave an advantage over um, conventional neural oh, networks. Yeah. Uh, could, so, you, could you yeah go into a little more detail there? Right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So. Um, um, a computer, a conventional computer, it, it runs on what is called a clock, right? You have this clock signals going on in your computer, and all the input, all the data that's in your computer, it moves all the time because of this clock signal, right? Um, in the in the brain, it's it's not like that. There's no uh, synchronization in the brain. You have spike trains that are asynchronous, meaning they spike at random times, right? And if they spike at random times, it means you're only computing, you're only uh, consuming energy when there's a spike. When there's no spike, your, your brain is ideal, right? It's not consuming any energy. And this is why our brain is so efficient. Our brain runs at 20 watts, right? 20 watts is the energy consumed by the light bulb on your roof. And, and that comes purely from the fact that the brain is not active all the time. It only becomes active when there are spike trains and the spike trains happen only when you're doing a task. Right, um, and and this has actually been implemented 
on hardware there are commercial uh, neuromorphic sensors uh, uh, that you can employ uh, uh, to 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 see uh, uh, the change of scene so for example imagine a camera a neuromorphic camera that works on the spectrings the camera does not consume any energy uh, when 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 nothing in its view change right there's no spectrings but if a person appears in front of the camera something has changed in the view of the camera and this is when spike trains are generated this is when computation happens in the camera and this is the idea of uh, you know low energy uh, low power consumption in the brain because of the spike trains um if i may add actually an actual generating an actual potential almost cost nothing is more the work around it to like um clean up the brain and repurpose neurotransmitters uh, what the glia do that consumes more energy the actual potential right. itself doesn't consume right, right but but my, my point was computation happens when there are action potential yeah. right? there's no computation when there are no action potential so what i think is really exciting is that you have the inhibitory uh, signal also there in your second paper because this should give a way more granular information processing that is more efficient and also more detailed. Um, did you see that? Um, like, do you generate a better, let's say, um, visual processing, basically? Oh, right, right. You yeah. so, right, so this is, this is a work in progress, right? So uh, uh, there are this machine learning, machine learning algorithms which use this idea of competitive learning, right? You, you learn by competing with other neurons. Um, and this is where the idea of inhibition comes in. Uh, and this is something that we're looking into right now. So we want to build uh, this models of winner-take-all neurons um, where the property of inhibition is exploited. That's a very good point, yeah. But this is exactly what, what I'm trying to say, right? Because your devices can do all this cool stuff, you can, you can implement uh, the nice features of the brain. Um, and, 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 and allow some of the computational ideas in neuroscience to be implemented. And from that, uh, from that new algorithms can evolve uh, for machine learning, right? So. Do you also generate upstates? We had a guest speaker here uh, from Max Planck Institute. He taught also about neuromorphic devices mm -hmm. that um, basically generate an upstate, so basically a more excitable state. Um, after like uh, a, a timely correlated inputs would come in. Do you also oh, have? Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is where the idea of this uh, reinforcement learning comes in. So uh, on the second paper, I think figure, figure two, figure three, right? So there's an up state that's created uh, and that up state, excuse me, that up state becomes um, a permanent state only when there's a second signal. The reward signal, right? So it is expecting some input, and if the input is correlated, then it you know becomes stronger. The synapse uh, become more stronger in their strength. That's right. Mm -hmm. so, so how does the system then select um, if uh, information? So it doesn't actively select, right? If an information is important, or if they, of, or if it's noise. Is there, you know, the brain kind of mm -hmm. does it a lot with combining it with emotions? 
you know, if something happened that is combined, let's say, with, with the emotion of fear, which happens like in the amygdala or something good, sure. like the mm -hmm. fast processing would be the amygdala of the labeling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you have that implemented or is it for now? No, but again, exactly, but this is, this is again the idea of, so the brain, because it functions on spike trains, it uses this idea of uh, temporal uh, correlations, right? Uh, so temporal correlations are at the heart of uh, neuromorphic computing. You try to correlate uh, different inputs. If the different inputs happen at the same time, then you learn things. You execute computations. Otherwise, you don't, right? So in, in, this, in this framework of um, Herbian learning or long-term plasticity, uh, it is a correlation between the postsynaptic spike and the presynaptic spike. That's how you learn. That's how you memorize. In this uh, framework of uh, reinforcement learning, this is the correlation between your uh, presynaptic spike and your uh, reward signal, right? And this is the reward signal that you're talking about right now, uh, this emotions and the serotonin and dopamine, right? Uh, so they are the reward signals. They must be correlated with a certain part of uh, spike activity in a brain. If they're correlated, then the spike, the synapses corresponding to that region would, would become stronger. So that's the correlation. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah. So will you have the possibility of basically generating networks um, that have then different levels of hierarchy, um, you know, that you will have different levels of uh, neural networks like this with different hierarchy levels? Um, are you planning on building something like it? So basically building a whole brain based on this. <laughs> I, th I think that's, that's a holy building. First one is to understand how the brain functions. <laughs> um, and I think this is, a, this is a very difficult task, right? And, and the task simply is difficult because, um, you know, we cannot uh, replicate how the, 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 the neurons uh, in the brains are connected, right? The neurons in the brain, they have the three-dimensional connect connectivity, right? Uh, what we try to build on chip is, 2D at most, or 3D as we have right now. But, but building hierarchical models are difficult. Uh, what we can do is we can build 2D models and connect them together um, to do exactly what we're trying to say right now, right? So one can imagine, uh, uh, you know, this is a, this has actually been done right now. So we can have a, a neomorphic vision sensor for, for the camera that I discussed a while back. Uh, so you have the component that is sensing the light Right, that's one hierarchy, the retina, the bipolar cells, the glandular cells. So that's that region, that component. And then you have uh, the back end uh, that is doing uh, the classification task. Uh, that's your, um, you know, the, the, the computational part. So, yeah. Dazi, uh, I think the question is. Oh, uh, oh Amish, uh, I believe Wisdom was next. Wisdom? Yeah, uh, my question is really. Hi. Um, yeah, I was, I was, uh, you were mentioning earlier talking about the cameras. I've been reading about these, uh, DVS cameras. Right. Dynamic vision sensor. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah. So it, um, just so I'm, I'm clear, is your hardware implemented in this way where there, where there is no clock cycles at all? I mean, I think this asynchronous computing thing is the, the big gain for, for absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so the hardware that we have, it can do both. It can work with asynchronous, asynchronous spikes, and it can also work with traditional clock-based signal. So it's invariant to that. 
But the reason I the reason I mentioned neomorphic vision sensor the DVS that you that you mentioned now is to highlight that you know neomorphic chips are already out there uh, doing some cool stuff. Uh, I'm curious. Could you take input from from a DVS device? Well, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you can have in. This is what happens right now. So you have input that comes to a camera. So camera basically. So the, the way the camera works is in its traditional form, right? You have a bunch of photodiode or photo sensors. They receive an input. They generate spike trains, and then this spike train goes onto your neural network. Yeah, and then. So competition happens in the neural network. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. Um, the the last question I had, I was just thinking about, you know, once you had kind of a a large hardware network of these synapses all all built up, uh, and you 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 start trying to learn something with it, are are there homeostatic mechanisms? I'm wondering about what prevents the hardware from, you know, going into unstable regimes or or oh, getting absolutely. locked in. Yeah, so I think I mentioned this, right? So uh, in figure, in figure, in the first paper that you have, right? So we implement we implement homeostatic mechanisms. So, and and we implement uh, homeostatic mechanism to do some useful computation. Um, so, uh, in the last figure, we use this uh, noise that happens on all the synapses in the network because of homeostatic mechanisms to do uh, to solve a difficult mathematical problem. Um, now coming to the question of uh, uh, adaptive adaption, right? Uh, you can find a result in the supporting information. You can adapt the uh, uh, fine activity of the neuron um, uh, based on its input uh, frequency. So that can very well be done. Yeah. Thank you. So I had a question in terms of. I mean, this is exciting technology. Um, very next, I hope. Um, in terms of the development, and I understand you're in research. Um, is there been discussions of IBM make, making some of this available, like say first through the internet, software development kits? Uh, and when can we get our hands on this? Um, um, I think I think uh, what we what we show here, right? There's two papers there. There's are proof of concepts, right? Here we we are building just a synapse or or a neuron, right? Uh, and 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 this is like you know nothing when it comes to building an AI chip. Uh, there's, there's a lot that needs to be done to make an AI chip. Uh, it's not just the synapses and neurons, but also the peripheral circuitries, the layout, and whatnot. Um, so at least we do not see this coming out anytime soon um, in, 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 in the realm where you can work with it. Uh, nonetheless, we have um, uh, IBM uh, non phoneme way of doing things, uh, IBM chips that you can play with. They are available for public to work with. So these are this are again the same idea. So, you know, I should, I, in the first paper, I, I said that we were using a phase change memory device, right? Um, we have a chip that runs in the cloud right now that you can play with that is based on phase change memory devices. Um, in that chip, uh, we are not using this uh, property of um, temporal dynamics. We are, we are only using the long-term plasticity. So you can play with those kind of um, uh, yeah, chips right now. Yeah, I mean, let me let me push on that a bit. I looked through this experimentals. I know IBM could scale that up if they saw the business case. <laughs> I used to be there, um, so I'm just curious uh, if you know if those business interests start lining up. What are the barriers to scaling that technology? Like, like if we wanted to, mm -hmm. you know, ramp that up. What what have you identified 
in terms of the difficulties in getting it off the bench? Right, right. So like I said, so IBM already had a chip, right? So IBM True Lot was some of the pioneering chip in the field of neomorphic computing. So there's, there's a full fresh chip called True Lot, IBM True Lot, uh, that 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 is fully based on spike trains and, and classing classing models and whatnot, right? Um, now the challenges that 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 come in front of neomorphic computing is what I already mentioned, right? So what are the algorithms uh, where neomorphic computing can can do better than what we currently have, right? Uh, so that's that's one, uh, and that has to do with the accuracy, right, of your machine learning task. Uh, so that's one of the biggest challenge um, of of spiking neural networks or neomorphic computing. Uh, the second challenge is what we address in this paper. So this paper is basically, uh, you know, scaling down that neomorphic chip. So so you can whatever I've showed you right now, this long-term plasticity, short-term plasticity. You can very well implement them using traditional silicon transistors, and it has already been done. So you can uh, uh, wire up a bunch of transistors, and you can implement a synapse that does both long-term plasticity and short-term plasticity. But what what happens in the process of doing so is that you are scaling up the size of your synapse, right? So in the brain, we have around 240 trillion synapses. Um, and if we take the approach of using the silicon transistors to do this, then it's not possible for us to even match that, right? Because at the end, the devices are super best. So in this paper, we show that you can overcome those limitations of bit device footprint by having new types of devices. And, and this is exactly what we do here. We come up with a very small device, nanoscale device, uh, that can substitute a micro scale transistor to do the same operation uh, in a neural network. Yeah. So, quick question: the the True North system that's a that's digital CMOS, right? Uh, no, not it's digital. Uh, I think the clock is digital, but you can always. Uh, I think you can opt now, so you can you can run it in the. Uh, um, I think in the in the LNR domain, so in the, in the asynchronous domain as well. Oh, interesting. If I, if I recollect, yeah. If I recollect, but nonetheless, uh, there, there are plenty of other chips uh, which which are you know pure spike planes, asynchronous based. There's the Interlohi, there's Spinnaker, uh, um, and and there are plenty. So you can just go to it, right? And there are also commercial products being launched. So there are a few startups that are making their own chips. Um, but again, like I said, uh, it depends what task you want to solve, right? If your task uh, demands very high accuracy, then right now, with the current algorithms, neomorphic may not be an option. But if your task demands uh, energy efficiency, if it wants to work in the realm of milliwatts uh, or microwatts of energy, then neomorphic may be an option going forward. Um, if I can just, oh, go ahead, Serena. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, if I can put this in a bigger like picture we had here on Clubhouse. Uh, I don't know if you know Ronald Sucarel, uh, Miguel Nicolelis from the Blue Brain Project. The Blue Brain, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, no, I'm not a part of this individual, but yeah, Blue, Blue Brain is <laughs> yeah. yeah, so they basically, like Ronald Sucarel and Miguel Nicolelis, they said one of the reasons we couldn't have uh, uh, a Turing machine imitates a human brain 
would be because there wouldn't be um, a physical change or implementation of the memory or the processing uh, that was back then. But I think your work and you know the other researchers working on this field are changing that. So there will be a physical uh, implementation of information processing of the environment. So mm -hmm. my idea is, just to give a bigger picture, my idea is that this will bring us closer to having a real AGI in the future. What do you think mm -hmm. about that? Um, I think, yeah, I think we, we, we are bettering the technology that we have every passing day, right? Um, yeah, but I think, um, so. To, to be able to implement AGI is not just the hardware that, that needs to you know, uh, be investigated, it's also the software and the algorithms that you run, right? And there, there's, a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of research options uh, at that end. So if one has to really make AGI, then, then there has to be you know, uh, um, research and, and improvements, not only on the hardware side of things, but also on the software side of things. And yeah, one day we can potentially have AGI in, in the real world. Um, but but just to again uh, uh, reinforce on the point that you said, right? So a um, uh, lot of uh, chips, for example, in the Blue Brain Project or the Human Brain Project uh, and Spinnaker and whatnot, right? So they're still improving. Uh, now and then they have different variants of the chip. Uh, so for, for instance, um, up until 2019 or 18, uh, they were only working with synapses and neurons, right? There were no dendrites involved. Um, now they are bringing in the dendrites in, into the into the mix, into that chip, right? And 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 this is happening. And and if you have dendrites now on the chip, we can do additional computations uh, with, with your hardware. And and with with the right algorithm, we can potentially implement AGI. Yeah. I, I was curious, and I've been lately thinking about. Uh, whether there's a connection here, and I'm curious what what you think. I, the other the other aspect of um, research uh, along these lines, uh, getting away from von Neumann architectures mm -hmm. and the the current paradigm in AI, is that the 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 current work in SBIs, uh, so people getting neurons in a dish, cultured neurons to learn things. Ah. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if you see that as an opportunity to learn, uh, you know, kind of rapidly iterate on what would work um, in a hardware implementation or, or the way the input output system uh, would work for, for the hardware, um, whether there could be mutual inspiration there or not. I think there's already some work along those lines, right? So this again brings to the example of DDS that we had. So, uh, so you can have your cultured cells, neurons, and and whenever they spike a train, whenever they spike an action potential, you can you can sense that action potential uh, and and transfer it to your silicon chip, right? And 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 then learn based on the spiking patterns. So this is already happening uh, in the field. Now I don't think I'm I'm educated enough to to be able to claim that this is the way forward to doing. Um, uh, with hybrid computing with brain and machine, but it's definitely quite interesting to look into. To look into right, it sh it sheds more light into how the neurons work, and at the end of the day, this is what we need on hardware.
So I wanted to ask, um, we've been going for almost um, an hour and 20 minutes. So I want to be respectful for your time. Um, to, how much longer do we have you for? Um, I think you have, we can have me as long as you want, um, I think. Oh, oh careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, well, well it's, it's, it's a Friday night, so <laughs> there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Okay, well, we can continue to take questions then. Um, nobody else, do you have a question? Not for now, it just popped in. Thank you so much, Serena. Okay. One last kind of selfish question, and now I'll, I'll stop asking questions, but um, I'm curious if you have any advice for anyone that's looking to get into this field. I ha Just in my case, I, I have an undergraduate in electrical engineering and CS. I was always stronger on the software side. Uh, I always, the, in terms of electrical engineering, I was always thinking about signal processing. And uh, I, I currently work in experimental, theoretical kind of, uh, you know, computational neuroscience. I, I'm just curious what, you know, what skill sets um, are, are really required for, for entry into the field. And lastly, uh, I kind of have this maybe a hoop dream in my head of there being this really tight um integration with with actual neuroscientific work um i'm curious how uh mistaken that would be to think of it that way i'm not sure if i if i, if I followed your second part of the question um neomorphic can, can you repeat it so sorry what the, what was your... so the second the second question that you had oh i, I, I was the, yeah so the first one was just about what it, sure. you know, what the entry point is. And then the, the second point was about how tightly integrated is this really with neuroscience? Like, is there, um, uh -huh. okay. Yeah. Right. So, so let me answer the, the second question, right? Because it, it goes with the flow. So it is, it is intensively, um, integrated with neuroscience. So, you know, the human brain project in Europe, the blue, uh, brain project, um, they are they are they are the projects that you know the, the most uh, funded projects right in in the world right now and 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 um, they are funded uh, because uh, the idea is to understand uh, and model the brain right uh, um, uh, with with inclusion of neomorphic chips right um, so this they are heavily funded right so. Uh, uh, so there's the neomorphic computing side of stuff that I talked about today, but there's the there's other side where you want to you know test your computational neuroscience models, right? You want to validate if your theory about how the brain functions is correct, right? So uh, yeah, so basically neomorphic computing emerged from this idea of uh, 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 understanding the brain on chip, right? So we first made chips that can uh, that can implement the dynamics of the neurons. Uh, when we made them, we tried to implement our computational neuroscience, neuroscience problems um, to, to do a bunch of things to understand if the brain functions this way or that way, right? And then we came up with the computing part. Hey, we have this hardware. Why not do some useful computations for, uh, for, for the applications that we have today? So that's how things have evolved. So it is extremely, extremely tightly integrated, right? They are not separate fields, they're the same field. And this is one reason why neomorphic computing is, is, is popular these days. 
it's not simply because it allows us to build better computers, but it also is because it also allows us to emulate um, the, 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 the physical, biophysical mechanisms. And by emulation, test our hypothesis of the mechanisms in the brain. Yeah. So that's the second question that, that you asked. The first one, I think uh, there are not really any specific requirements. Um, so, so my background is just, so you're already a step ahead of it, right? Just, just, just to let you know. So my background is uh, in, in, material, in material science. I have worked with steels, with, 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 with alloys, and, and, and now what I do is computer science, right? So, so, and so all that takes really is, 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 is the interest in the field. And one way to approach the field is, is if, since you're a computer scientist, uh, to, to try out uh, coming up with new algorithms, for example. Right, so you can read a bunch of uh, papers in neuroscience, uh, speculations to what the brain does, and perhaps use those ideas uh, to come up with an algorithm that you can implement on a neuromorphic computing chip for some useful computational task. Um, yeah, so so I think this is one way uh, going forward, but there are ample opportunities, right? So algorithm side of things, there's also circuit side of things. Uh, if you want to build a neuromorphic chip, one has to be able to generate spike trains, integrate spike trains. So there's a lot of electrical side of electrical engineering involved in this uh, process. So yeah, if 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 you're interested, right, then there are a lot of ample opportunities to to grab on, and 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 it'll be an easy way in since you already have a background in computational in in computer science. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So it sounds like it, it's reasonable to uh, have some neuroscientists or computational neuroscientists on these teams. Oh, in, in my team? Sorry, I didn't, oh, I didn't get your question. Yeah, in these development teams in general. Oh, absolutely. No, so absolutely. So, 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 so the, I think the, the, third, the third author of, of this, the first paper, right? Uh, he's a computational neuroscientist. So he comes. He, he, he understands, um, uh, for, for instance, uh, 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 he tries to develop models based on the, he tries to develop computational algorithms based on the, the models of the brain, right? So a lot of computational neuroscientists are actually uh, doing AI right now, right? It's not a separate field anymore. Um, they are intertwined in many ways. Um, and, 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 and what I mentioned, the, the projects like the human brain and, and the blue uh, brain project, it, it's not only involving uh, neuroscientists, right? It's, it's a mix of all possible disciplines. You have computer scientists, you have electrical engineering, material scientists, they're working together uh, in building up hardware and, and algorithms. Yeah. Well, okay, um, so we have some new people on stage. Uh, we can go in PTR order. Uh, White Hat, do you have any questions? Yes, uh, uh, I have a question. Uh, like you know, uh, uh, see, I'm a solution architect. Basically, work in the fintech industry. I, I do a programming Java kind of technologies and uh, design uh, systems. So, uh, like you know, I've been almost like almost 20 years into the industry. But uh, the question uh, to Gassi is like you know, if uh, I want to enter into this particular field because I'm very, very much interested to do some research on this artificial intelligence side and. Uh, uh, what we are speaking about like in a human uh, mapping blue brain project kind of thing so uh, see like you know i know i'm kind of probably not uh, 
young enough to start everything but if at all i am interested uh, where i can start uh, like you know which uh, to some institutions or any training uh, which i can oh, start right 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 um, sure sure so so i think there are a lot of job advertisements have been posted now and then uh, so for different positions i i didn't i think i didn't get that about i don't know what your what your background is right now in terms of your degree but but now and then there are ample opportunities being posted um, for computer scientists uh, um, to 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 jump onto the bandwagon um, so all you have to do is you know reach out to people uh, and tell them what your skills are and, and i'm sure they would they would be happy to have you especially the new uh, the uh, computational neuroscientists right um so to them it will be interesting to have someone who can do computer science and implement some of the models they want to implement uh, on on programming yeah but but there are ample opportunities i think uh, yeah. yeah i think i was late to join this conversation so uh please let me know like you know uh, which country or i mean if it is not personal like you know which project uh you're working on where i can see this opportunities kind of thing was going to in europe us or in asian country wherever it is oh right so so specific to us i i am placed in europe i am in switzerland right so so i was for ibm research in 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 switzerland in zurich um so uh, you can always check out the website there we have we have a good website where we post job openings now and then um and if it interests you can reach out people um we have a, we have a team working exclusively on neuromorphic computing um and and if they if they are interested they'll be they will be keen to interview you nonetheless uh, we are not the only one right uh, like i said europe is heavily investing into understanding the brain better into building uh, ai chips so you should you should be more open to looking into opportunities um, uh, uh, in multiple places within europe for example yeah okay so do you have a question Yes, just quickly. My question is uh, in relation to the chip shortage that we're experiencing. I was wondering if you could touch upon that. I'm wondering if the innovation is lagging behind the availability for chips, or the other way around. Ah, oh, right. Uh, so mm, I think it does. So, so for for instance, we have had the first-hand experience of this. Um, so, if you really want to build up a scale-up um, uh, uh, chip, scaled-up chip, right? uh so 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 what we did in this paper it's it's not a chip that would go into a product it's nowhere there right it's it's a proof of principle uh demonstration in the papers that we had but if you want to build up a full fledged chip then it has to go through a foundry a semiconductor foundry and 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 there uh you know this is where this this chip chip shortage comes in uh, you are delayed uh, in getting your chip back um, to be able to do useful research or to be able to do productization um but nonetheless uh, uh what we do and what most, most people do um, uh, in brains or blue brain project or uh, they work with indigenous chips right they're not working with with the cutthroat process of making devices and wafers they are working with older generation of uh, fabrication technologies and 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 older variants of 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 silicon so they can still tweak with uh, they can still you know it's still research it's, it wouldn't impact them the way you think it would it's impacting right now the commercial market for example yeah it definitely has an impact but in research where you are doing more of an exploratory science uh, the impact is not severe 
So that that is how I would put. Okay, uh, Rabbit, and then we'll go to Abyss. Hey, everyone. How are y'all? Did, did you have a question? Uh, yeah, I studied uh, in graduate school, I studied genetic algorithms with structured data, uh, advanced data structures uh, underneath uh, my professor, Zbigniew Mikhailovich. Uh, he has a book that set, that's called Genetic Algorithms Plus Data Structures equals evolutionary programming and i also did some work on neural networks like two layer and three layer networks and back then uh we adjusted per sometimes using genetic crossover and mutation to train the neural network by modifying the weight of each connection in the network and so part of my question is uh, do these uh, neuroplasticity chips that you're speaking about still model the synaptic relationship between two neural nodes as a merely a single weight versus a more complicated synaptic model like we see in the brain? Uh, because there's this new discovery uh, of the importance of what are called astrocytes. So to continue briefly what I'm saying, any flow network, whether it be electricity or uh, petroleum or any sort of flow network requires the presence of a control network that is kind of symbiotic to the flow network. And the control network adjusts the flow and so in that sense, perhaps the synaptic connections between neurons is partnering with the astrocytes, which modify the secondary and tertiary neurotransmitter emission within the synapse, which either ex uh, elevates or, or reduces the strength of the synapse. Uh, modeled more sophisticatedly than merely a weight, a number of weighting. So I was wondering about uh, control network and modeling a more sophisticated synapse. Thank you so much. So thank you. Thank you for the great question and, and your research and your professor's research sounds quite fascinating. But I must you know, confess that, that I'm not capably educated to, to to be able to speak about this this flow networks and, and the new model that you're that you're mentioning, right? Um, uh, it could well be. It could well be that this is what happens in the brain. And if it does happen, then in the future we may come up with a device or a way of implementing this on the hardware. Um, and and this is what we do right now with with our chip. Uh, traditionally, uh, it was thought that uh, it is only the long term plasticity, uh, the weight uh, that needs to be uh, that that that. That is the only thing that is needed to implement uh, neuromorphic computing, right? Um, but, but like you said, there's more sophistication than more complexity to the synapse than we think there is. And one complexity is the short-term plasticity, and this is what we address right now in our research. There could very well be other mechanisms that, that determine uh, the, the state of the synapse, and yeah, and, and, and maybe someone will do it in the, in the future. Yeah. 
sorry. Yeah, you're right. So, so uh, the, the the overarching the the, the, the database message of my talk today is exactly what you're trying to claim. Uh, there's more complexity to the to the synapses, um, uh, and and if that complexity can be complexity can be emulated on hardware, then one can perform uh, computations uh, uh, in a more efficient way. Uh, but what what mechanisms uh, dictate that complexity? Uh, that 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 have been uncovered every passing day, right? No way. Yeah, great. One of the aspects of the astrocytes was the control of emission and uptake of potassium ions, which mm -hmm. affected the electrical conductivity through across mm -hmm. the synapse. But there's right. also secondary and tertiary uh, neurotransmitters, which also modify the effectiveness of a synapse. Right. Yeah, so right. it's all very, very interesting. It is. It is so. So, so one mechanism for short-term plasticity, right? It's, it's again in the line of what you mentioned. So, one possible mechanism for short-term memory or short-term plasticity is the uptake and intake of magnesium ions, for instance, right? Or calcium ions. So, it's along the same direction of what you mentioned right now. Yeah. Uh, curiosity would be: Is it directly proportionate with the amounts of, uh, let's say, sodium in the system? Because usually potassium counteracts uh, sodium. Um, right, right, right. Uh, but I think right now we're talking about uh, uh, right, right. So, so, so what dictates the action potential at the synapse uh, are not just the concentrations of your your primary ions, sodium and potassium or calcium, right? It's also the neurotransmitters that you have, right? So, so the uh, the, the, the synaptic strength in a way uh, is also a function of your um, neurotransmitters, uh, in addition to the ions. Um, yeah, but definitely yes. So, so uh, uh, the ability of uh, your neuron to generate action potential depends on your membrane potential, right? In a way, and that is dictated by the concentration of your uh, ions. Uh, and this is where the idea of homeostasis comes in, right? In homeostasis, in homeostatic plasticity, uh, you're modulating the the medium in which your neuron is. You're essentially modulating the number of uh, the concentration of the sodium ions and the calcium and the potassium ions. And this has consequences uh, on how the neuron fires or behaves. Yeah, my limited understanding. Okay, let's let's, let's go to a let's go to abyss, and then uh, after just, this, I just had one, I have a, one thing well, to I have add. A, I, so let's go to abyss, and then I have a question to follow up on astrocytes because that's a fascinating topic. So. Yeah, it is. Uh, I also have a question. Uh, I'm, I'll wait my for my turn. Okay, abyss. What's on your mind? Hi, Serena. Hi, Kat. Um, and hi, hi, Gizzy. Uh, uh, I'm sorry if I said it incorrectly. Speak yeah, up uh, a bit. Great presentation. Uh, can you guys hear me all right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I came in late to the presentation, but I'm really fascinated. I've been fascinated with neuromorphic circuits for quite some time now. And um, I'm, I'm taking it like I'm gleaning through the paper and I'm looking at really fascinating findings. I do have a couple of questions for you. Um, the first one being that, uh, I guess like uh, Wisdom also touched upon this um, earlier, which is the computational neuroscience is uh, kind of evolving in a way. You don't, I mean, um, the 
the type of firings that each unit actually responds to is highly dependent on the neurobiology of the neuron itself. So I'm just curious, like how the neuromorphic circuits are capable of adapting to a new kind of computational model that um, kind of mirrors the biological system. So I'll start with that one. Right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, um, right, right. So, so I, I mentioned a few times um, well, this, this EU-funded project called the Blue Brain Project or, or the Human Brain Project, right? Um, now, they they, uh, they have come up with a, a list of um, uh, uh, the complexity of abstraction, right? So um, you can you can uh, approximate your neurons uh, uh, to, to various degrees, right? Uh, it can be a very simple threshold model, which does not take a lot of uh, space in a, uh, a lot of data, right? But it can be very complex. You can have all your ion channels involved, your, your medium involved, and then it takes a lot of data and it makes it very energy inefficient. Um, so to answer your question, um, yes, there are different uh, uh, models that one can implement on a chip. Uh, to capture the different complexity uh, of a neuron. Uh, but the more complex your neuron model becomes, uh, the more um, processing you need on a chip. Um, so that's why the complexity comes in. Um, I think uh, if you want to just make a threshold uh, neuron model without you know, ion channels and whatnot, uh, just to put into perspective, you're working with kilobytes of data, right? Uh, to compute. But if you now include ion channels, if you include different mechanisms and whatnot, then it jumps to uh, megabytes and gigabytes uh, per neuron, right? You're talking just one neuron. Uh, uh, the data transfer is one neuron. So it becomes extremely complex. Uh, and you're solving on top of the differential equations and whatnot. So the complexity increases uh, as you try to model your neuron uh, more and more rigorously. Does that answer your question? Did I get it right? It does actually. Like you also address the concern that um, modeling a neuron is not an easy task. I mean, basically, you're dealing with a bunch of differential equations, and simplicity itself is required in order to mirror that um, activity, so that you can create a very efficient neuromorphic neuron. So, thank you for that. My second question is probably, I mean, the last one is that. Um, I think Kyle also touched upon this, that uh, is there a way to kind of go from like uh, the FPGA kind of modeling where you test out different neuromorphic computations to uh, creating like a stamping of like a CMOS um, that's kind of dedicated to doing certain kind of computation for specific tasks or, or even MEMS device that are kind of fine-tuned to doing specific specific computations. Is there, um, I guess that my question is like, is there a way to go from like the prototyping phase to uh, the product uh, shipment phase where you don't have to rely on silicon, um, um, silicon wafers, but instead you can try out other kinds of computational materials to perform neuromorphic circuit or to neuromorphic computation? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, um, FPGA is, is heavily involved uh, these days. You know, you can, you can basically make a neural network using FPGA. Uh, and there are, there are um, you know, platforms that are purely based on FPGA doing what a silicon chip does today, right? Um, and, and yeah, so, so basically, you know, we can you should think of a neural network as a black box, right? You input something and get output, you, you get an output of something, right? 
uh, what hardware you use in the black pot uh, really depends on, on on what application that you want that you that, that you are trying to you know um, work with. Um, but but FPGAs are quite popular uh, in the field of neomorphic computing uh, and in, in, in neural networks. Um, the second question was, uh, um, um, if, if I got it right, um, uh, specialized chips, right? So uh, right now, um, uh, machine learning runs on specialized chips. Um, so for example, uh, the, the AI that happens on, on Google, it happens on a chip that's called tensor processing unit. And there's a specialized chip that, that is meant to do matrix vector multiplication operations. It's only for that, right? Uh, uh, in Tesla, right? So Tesla has its own, uh, you know, smart cars and autonomous driving. They have made their own specialized chips to do uh, AI uh, uh, tasks, right? So just just as a disclaimer, right? Uh, Tesla is not a chip making company. Google is not a chip making company, but they have started to make their own chips, specialized chips, uh, including Google. Yeah, including Google, right? Google, uh, Baidu. Amazon, right? What not? So they're making their own uh, specialized chips, um, proprietary chips to, to to implement their workloads. So yeah, specialized chips is how the things are right now. Doctor Sarvat. But there's a yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Okay. But there's, a down, there's a downside to specialized chips, right? Uh, with the specialized chips, you become extremely narrow, right? And with a specialized chip, you never will be able to, you know, get to a stage where you can implement uh, AGI that we were talking about a few minutes ago. Um, so, so it's also important that the network is flexible or the chip is flexible uh, to be able to do other operations. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. So, so I wanted to, um, and, and thank you, I wanted to bring it back to astrocytes because it's such a, a fascinating topic and the the neurobiology of what we've learned in the last decade is uh, is exploding, and the implications are profound for for these. Um, certainly, uh, to to follow up, you know, Rabbit and nobody else um, in the mentioning the tripartite synapse, where regulation of and um, of the of the synapse is is a fairly active process, and we're understanding much more about what goes on there. Uh, certainly in the sense of um, isopotentiality of potassium regulation, but also um, in terms of the astrocyte networks, and in particular the astrocytes in Sisham, the astrocytes themselves form gap junctions and extended non-local networks, and they reach out through fine processes to um, to interact with many, many synapses. and. Uh, as, as, as they become activated, they um, set up resonances in, in calcium oscillations, which extend over, over large periods and um, are thought to bring many, many neurons into synchronicity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so in terms of the research challenges of modeling that, I mean, astrocytes can move around, they can change their morphology, they, and they, um, if they're, if they're interesting function is in terms of building up and, and sustaining, in essence, integrating in the form of calcium oscillations mm -hmm. uh, that, um, that contribute to theta wave frequencies. How, how might we model that in terms of hardware? And that's a very difficult challenge. 
Um, right, right, right. Can I also <laughs> squeeze my question in there for a second? I think it could be yeah. related. I think it could bring it back together and then sure, uh, go maybe ahead. Dr. Sarvat. Um, sure. Sarvat, uh, if you could bear in mind the, the previous um, very prolific comment and question, uh, Serena, and also to if you could talk a bit about like your thoughts and your knowledge on uh, companies like Kernel, you know, Brian Johnson works on this uh, brain computer interface that is non-invasive, that picks up on those specific um, frequencies, let's say, like a, um, mm -hmm. like, like an Apple watch for lack of a better comparison. Um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll stop there, but if you could, uh, like, it could make a lot of difference discerning between uh, what is circumstantial in terms of problems, um, mental illness uh, what is acute what could be circumstantial i'll, I'll stop there i'm sure you already know about the right right so i think i think both saina you are going to be disappointed with my answer but but to be very frank i'm not very familiar with, with astrocytes right um, and, and the mechanisms that that, that they, they result in um, nonetheless nonetheless um, what we have discussed so far are the traditional um, uh, uh, emulations of uh, neural networks, right? Um, uh, there are hardware emulations that are based on oscillations. So you can build a neural network on hardware um, that is purely based on oscillatory, oscillatory processes, where the output is dictated by the differences in the phases uh, of the of the inputs. And and I think uh, uh, there may be an opportunity where this idea of astrocytes can be tried. Um, there's always, I think, um, um, yeah, something to think about there. Um, so yeah, so um, I think. For for example, that, that, that's the yeah. best I can answer with to, to, to your question. So you know, yeah. I mean, it would be um, so in terms of theta waves. That's uh, you know, it's up like five to ten hertz. But in terms right. of your, your spike chain train, they were you know, you, your device was down in the nan in the nanoseconds, right? Periods. Um, oh, right, right, right. No, so, um, this, this is where the distinction between oh, right, right, yeah. So I was just curious, like in the example with the uh, with the reward function implemented in terms of light, if there's a um, an emergent type of uh, temporal correlation that oh, could drive right. lower frequency oscillations that would simply that would select in temporal periods, for example, at much lower frequencies. Perhaps mm -hmm. that could drive synchronicity in these larger circuits, for example. You know, in, not necessarily trying to model the whole astrocytic network, but at least some aspects of the functional behavior of transferring sure. to lower frequency resonances to um, condition uh, groups of sure. neurons. Mm -hmm. Sure, I think it can very well be done. Um, I think it, it all takes a clever idea. Uh, 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 to, to, to come up with a device that can implement this, right? Um, and, and if one puts uh, thoughts into it, then I'm sure there would be a hardware that can uh, emulate this um, network that you're talking about. Um, yeah, but, okay. but like I said, like, like I said, there are already uh, 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 different approaches to implementing a neomorphic chip. Um, so there's, there's an entire field of oscillatory neural networks. Uh, that that can synchronize, you know, where neurons are synchronized with each other, uh, just like what you said, that this could potentially be implemented. Yeah. Yeah. So if you would look at uh, Dr. Pascalis Gu Gu 
P. Dennis. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. He was a guest speaker here before. He was at the Mexican Institute. He did mm -hmm. this, and I shared the paper for the audience or anyone who's interested. I shared it in the chat. The paper. You can oh, also awesome. check out mm -hmm. the recording. Yeah, he did this work about um, functional mm -hmm. connectivity of these mm -hmm. devices and uh, having global voltage oscillations that are comparable. Mm -hmm. To uh, to actual brainwave networks. Yes, I'm very, I'm very, yes, right, right. I'm very aware of his work, and, and you're right. So, so what, what he's, what he and his team are trying to build are this, um, are these devices that work with, you know, these are these are organic devices. You're using polymers and whatnot, right? Um, and so it's more of an approach where you're trying to uh, build models uh, to implement the, the mechanisms of the brain. Um, what I am doing and my team is doing is that we are they are building uh, chips based on inorganic materials, um, meaning that we are really uh, interested in making uh, a technology that, that can be used by you and I, right? At the end of the day, um, so there's there's a bit difference there, right? Um, but 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 nonetheless, uh, you know, any idea there is uh, in in neuroscience. Uh, with proper thinking uh, and expertise, it can be implemented on hardware. This is what I've learned so far in my experience. Right? Um, yeah, good. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, I'm aware you have to leave. Um, so uh, I wanted to give you the opportunity to get rid of us. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 thank you. <laughs> no, um, thank you so much for being here and answering all of our questions so patiently and giving this great talk and this opportunity to talk with you. Uh, your research is very interesting and important and leads us into hopefully a great future and saving a lot of resources. So thank you for that. And you are always welcome back to come back with maybe updates on your research that you're allowed to share. Um, if you're interested, so um, yeah, please come back anytime. Sure, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm humbled by your invitation, really. And like I said, this is a new experience. Uh, I've never done um, a telephonic uh, discussion this long before. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think I think I learned things as well from this from this discussion that we had today. And I hope, and I really hope that you know I was clear um, in my language and in my in my tone uh, that the message I wanted to pass was delivered. Right? Um, yeah. Good. I just, I just wanted to yeah. chime in on thanking you for spending time with us. This has been uh, really enlightening and inspiring for me. So thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for, very much, for listening. Thank you for your amazing things. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We recorded the session, so you're invited to record. And maybe if you have questions, we either uh, have a, a weekly recap on Monday this time, not on Sunday, where we summarize. Uh, and answer questions that you might not have um, a chance to ask this time. And then also uh, you can email me or direct message me with questions and maybe, you know, I can I can maybe forward them if it's something I cannot sure, answer sure. myself. 
So, Absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so oh. much again. Enjoy think... your weekend. I you the weather in Switzerland. <laughs> Is it okay or rainy? Like oh, no, it's or... terrible. It's terrible. Oh, yeah. Don't the screen is horrible. <laughs> <It's terrible. laughs> Everything is oh. melting and raining. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very rainy. That's true. You have to go up to the Alps to... There are spots uh, where you can ski in, in this time in a t-shirt basically, but it's high up, so there's still enough uh, frozen ice. You should check it right. out. Bet my Alp well, is a should, great spot. <laughs> well, well, you should know that. You should know that I'm not Swiss. I'm Indian. I'm sure to break my bones. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they have great teachers. <laughs> they, they have great teachers. I, I can recommend sure, sure. you to go to What was your curiosity, store. Dr. Servant? Uh, right. So I, I wanted to, I think I, I really like what you what you people have done, right? Um, um, it's very interesting that um, a, a bunch of individuals came together to just create this forum. I'm just wondering um, if you can tell me briefly how it came about and, and what your intentions are going forward. So, yeah, thank you for asking that. That's really nice. So actually, you know, I came onto this app mostly during like COVID times. And, um, you know, then people start asking me about my work. And then I kind of was boring just to talk about myself. So I started inviting people, other scientists. And then I did this club and now it became a really regular thing, like almost every day. Um, and uh, yeah, and it's been great that we have really great experts coming and we're making great connections. And I'm planning next to have, the next step would be to invite maybe groups of the different fields to discuss together. So maybe if you're available in the future, maybe in the fall, I would, invite you and Pascalis to uh, talk about this maybe together maybe with a few other people and um and then yeah and then we'll go from there like uh, i made the actual organization out of it um so uh, yeah hopefully we'll one day expand more and have a physical place also to have people connecting so yeah let's see <laughs> but for now i'm happy with how it's working out okay that's very cool that's very nice and, and well done on what you have achieved so far um and yeah all the very best for, for your ambitions of, of making this an independent uh, platform i think it'll be it'll be a great uh, um, service to science, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so. all the very best. Yes. <laughs> yes, to give people the availability to learn about science from the people that are actually doing the science. And I think we learned a lot. I learn a lot. I never learned so much in my life. Like, Clubhouse, master's degree. I papers every day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> Dr. Sarwat, how to ring it. Clubhouse, master's degree. <laughs> <laughs> right. I just wanted to add, Katarina, gave a very humble uh, uh, summary. Um, the Science Society is growing very quickly, and it's because of the content that and, and the speakers and the quality that Katarina brings. And um, she's really done a fantastic job, and, and we're growing very fast. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful experience. And if, you know, when, when life sort of takes you away for a few days, you really miss it. <laughs> and it's great to come We're back. We're proud of you, Katarina. Well done, you. We're proud of you. <laughs> yeah. 
you you have amazing teammates katrina <laughs> yeah thank you oh i'm humbled thank you i would be nothing without all the help from everyone here yeah, yeah. So. Well, so, thank you. I, honestly, I honestly have no idea how you do it katrina it's <laughs> amazing i i i'm like loosely committed to a one room a week and i feel like i'm i don't know anyway good. <laughs> this is great well and so just um, as um, a, oh go ahead sorry I'm, I was going to say, I'm intrigued by the possibility of going skiing this time of year. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's the best time in Switzerland to uh, ski. It's I'm now, more of an... It's the best time. I'm more of an... Because off- there's not this cold storm. If you're high up, as I said, the ice is still, like, the snow ice is still there. If you're at, like, 3,000-something meters. Yeah. And... There are villages where, where you don't have any cars, so you have to take this cable things to come up there. And there are small villages high up, and there's no traffic, nothing, nothing that disturbs yeah. you. A glacier is close by. It's amazing. It's the best. I've, I've skied uh, St. Moritz, Zermatt, Interlaken, but uh, I'm I'm more of a fan of the Austrian glaciers around Innsbruck. Uh, it's called Stubai Glacier. Yeah, yeah, I've been there too. But Betma, I've checked it out. It's the it's so silent. You don't experience that anymore anywhere else. Um, the silence combined the snow with no traffic in like I don't know for how long for how many miles around you. Exactly, um, and I, I I feel like the same problem exists with noise. Uh, sorry, with light pollution, it's getting harder and harder to observe the cosmos in the backyard with a telescope. That's what she said. Yeah. Well, I thought she was talking about yeah, noise. Also, no, 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 it was a joke. It was a joke. Also. Yeah. Oh, no, okay. no, it's uh, yeah, you're right. Also, the the light is it's amazing, and yeah, it's a uh, it's a wonderful place, and the milk from these high up cows are the best. You know, they have, they bring the cows up to the Alm in the summer and uh, to, so they get this special, um, you know, grass with all these different flowers that the milk, I don't like milk, cow milk, but there I love cow milk. Like it's not processed, it's just right out of the cow, basically. It's amazing. Anyways, and the chocolate, like everything is amazing, basically. Well, that's very true. All okay, right. great. Um, um, enjoy your weekend. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I'll follow the club if you enjoyed this. We'll have more rooms next week. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Gazi. And I uh, wish you all the best for your research. And thanks for coming. Thank you. Wunderbar, wunderbar, Thank you, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.